Dolomite is my name, and fucking up motherfuckers is my game. The badass line step don't signify much. The monkey said, motherfucker, can't you see why you standing on my goddamn I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. I took the leap. Somebody's heart. This is Death by DVD, and it's time to put your motherfucking weight on it. You are listening to Hank, the devil's son-in-law, and one bad, bad mother, who on the day he was born slapped his father in the face and said, Look here, cocksucker, I'm running this place. It's I, Alexander Nash. Where is Bucky, and what has he had? If you couldn't gather, this week's episode is about somebody incredibly special, a man who his entire life put his weight on it. We're talking about Rudy Ray Moore as we continue our celebration of Black History Month. Before we get too deep into things, I did want to bring something up. We only did two Black History Month episodes, and I know that's a cop-out. We had the whole month to do this, and I didn't want it to come off as like a last-minute note. So I definitely kind of want to add in here, you just don't have to celebrate Black History in February. You don't have to look at black art specifically in february you could do it in june or even november you could do it all year round and the sad thing is this is available constantly you don't need to get on netflix and see hey check it out here's a bunch of black people for this month and then forget about it and you don't need to go over the same boring things you don't have to look at just like the return of superfly or house party 2 there are so many Beautiful things, literature, poetry, uh, music, all sorts. The Return of Superfly is what you chose to go with? (laughs) It's not that good of a movie. Superfly is good. Well, it's available, though. Turn on Netflix and then look at their Black History Month section, and it's like Return of Superfly, House Party 2, Friday After Next. I don't even know if Ron O'Neill's in Return of Superfly. (laughs) There's so much more, though. I mean, and it's just kind of, I I think, laughable when you look at a lot of what's put in your face in February by streaming networks to where... Why even do you have to put the same five things up when there is so much more available? There are so many people that uh, are taught in school that you don't even realize are African Americans, that are uh, poets, musicians, people that have absolutely changed the world. But my whole point here is you don't need February for just Black History Month. Everything that we're talking about, the people we're celebrating, last week we were talking about Bill Gunn, Ganja and Hess, a movie starring Dwayne Jones. You just don't need to watch it in February. You could do this all year round. You could celebrate black art and black people in general all year. You just don't need a fucking month for it. I'd say the best way of celebrating Black History Month all year is generally just don't be a racist asshole or a dick about it. (laughs) So, like, just to get into a little bit of Rudy Ray Moore action, his life and what he was famous for is... Integral to the oh, by the way, black yeah. ex- 
that's what the show is. It's this is a celebration of Rudy Ray Moore. So <laughs> sorry, I didn't actually announce that part, did I? This is the Rudy Ray Moore spectacular. This is the the core of the Rudy Ray Moore movies, the the ones that really mattered. I mean, he like did a little like guest shots and a lot of other stuff throughout the years. But we're gonna go with the the four core Rudy Ray Moore movies. And aside from that too, we have really the celebration of Rudy Ray Moore and and who he is. And something that I think is really unique is you, especially now in this digital era, being able to go out and shoot your movie and do it however you want to people get all this credit for like robert rodriguez quentin tarantino martin scorsese and in the early 1970s rudy ray moore went out there and i I don't think there's any other definition of independent filmmaker than what rudy ray moore was especially for the film dolomite and he never really gets the praise and the credit that i think he should as a true king of independent films in a time especially when a, a man of color just fucking couldn't get a job in the film business unless they were doing some yes man bullshit work. Well, I mean, what's kind of important is determining who Rudy Ray Moore was. I mean, he was in the army. He did um, some R&B and soul singing. He just never really caught on. He always just kind of wanted to be an entertainer and be famous. I mean, he actually had a full statement on that, that he had released doo-wop records, he had done R&B records long before he'd even gotten into comedy, pretty much every style of music under the sun. And specifically, this is, I mean, I'm going to paraphrase here a little bit, but Rudy thought it was because, you know, white trash motherfuckers like Pat Boone, who would get on the radio and would sing black songs, were overly accepted because they were white guys. And, you know, the Kingston Trio, you had a lot of these folk bands that were taking traditional African-American music and slave music and things that had been passed down from generation to generation and were recording it. They were covering the airwaves. So Rudy felt even early on in his life that it it really was a white man's world and that he was getting you know pretty much pushed to the side because he was was black and then you know you move into the 60s and 70s when music had changed so drastically pushing his music nobody wanted to fucking play it anymore because it was doo-wop and r&b and soul from the 40s and that's where rudy ray moore really took off because what rudy ray moore ended up doing and what brought him his fame was he um started doing a stand-up comedy act which he basically took something from the inner city, which was called the Dozens. The Dozens was a more commonly done as like your mama jokes, things like that. But also um, it had a rhythm and a rhyme to it, which has been adopted into, say, like modern rap battles where you're just dissing each other. And Rudy Ray Moore took this like rhyming style and kind of turned it into a like a nightclub act and he got really popular. I mean, he didn't write all this stuff himself either. He like picked That's it up after from... he was an adagio dancer too. Like he was a traditional African dancer early on in his career where they would he come did out so much crazy shit over the years. But once he got into comedy, it's like, that's what really started pushing him to the forefront of taking these things from the inner city and really packaging it and monetizing it and started to make self-produced records that he sold out of the back of his trunk for God's sakes, which again has translated into more like, especially late nineties, early two thousands, uh, rap where like 50 cent was just selling records out of the back of his car. He was selling demo tapes and well, all the same time you had people like red Fox who were doing something very, very similar, but a lot of red Fox's shock value was just completely sexual nature and cursing. He still appealed to a very certain audience, but I mean, at this point, the Dolomite character hadn't been really defined by Rudy Ray Moore. And from what I understand, he struggled very, very hard because he was really competing against, like, uh, primarily Red Fox, that he had taken that circuit. And 
if you were going to do something in that fashion, you either had to completely copy him or come up with something new. So even as an R&B and soul musician, Rudy could just never break ground. He would come up with a hit, he would come up with a really poppin' song, but a week beforehand, a white group or Red Fox or somebody else similar in those situations would have done the exact same thing, and he never quite made it. Like, he got really close. Like, he, he'd, he'd not gotten Billboard success, but he would get some airtime. He would get some notoriety. He had deals at clubs. He traveled. He did the, God, what's it called? The Grits circuit? Just the, the dirty, shitty, south, southern, bitter circuit through places like Arkansas, where that's where Rudy Ray Moore was actually born and, and happily escaped from when he was 15 years old. He spent a lot of his life after he got out of the military touring these, these shit-kicker towns. And we can call them shit-kicker towns because you and I live in any town USA, which is centralized in the shit-kicking South, unfortunately. We have that get-out-of-jail-free card to talk bad about it. Yeah, and like, what really made his style set apart from everything else, it was it was very prepared. I mean, he, this is all very much written material. He even like stole the Dolmite character from um, uh, like this homeless... It was a wino, pretty much. I As mean, he called him, uh, his name was Rico, and he like would record these people on the street and kind of repeat this back. But he actually monetized it, put it onto a record, and his records themselves were very eye-catching. I mean, what his first record was uh, "Eat Out More Often," and it had him naked on the cover. And Rudy Ray Moore was never a particularly like attractive or fit man. He was always like slightly chubby. Uh, but he always like threw it out there. It was him and a bunch of uh, like half naked women on the cover, and all the titles of his records were incredibly foul, double on time. I think his second and... album as Dolomite was "This Pussy Belongs to Me." There you go. <laughs> his very first record was called "Step It Up." So okay. he, you go from something, and that's way before Dolomite. That's like R and B going into the early fifties. So you can even see by looking at his album covers. The progression from where he's got that little Richard style and then he's moved on, he's going into comedy and he's wearing sunglasses and suits. And then finally, naked on the the album cover, which was all his idea. And it's something really unique about Rudy Ray Moore because I pe- think people look at Dolomite and they think he's Dolomite. But this is this is something he, a quote, I'm, I'm not paraphrasing, here's a direct quote from Rudy Ray Moore. I am a spiritual God-fearing man just playing a ghetto expressionist. And I wanted to use that quote because I really like that term, and I, I don't feel either of us have a place to say this is ghetto or that's ghetto without having an explanation for it. But ghetto expressionist is is the most pristine and wonderful way that you could talk about Rudy Ray Moore because with what you were just explaining, he took these things from the streets, he took these things from mostly people of color, which is addressing California even then and now that there is a a horrible, horrible, horrible homeless problem within the state and they don't give a fuck about the people. He took these stories and uh, developed a character that cared about the people, that cared about the community, that wanted... He, he, Rudy Ray Moore wanted to make movies and make this persona about a black man that wasn't getting his ass kicked for once. For for the very first time, a, a man of color isn't getting the shit kicked out of them. And he bared it all. He, he... He, he created this persona so perfectly that you just couldn't see the difference between them. And you've got the, the wonderful Eddie Murphy film, uh, Dolomite Is My Name, where you get a personal look almost. You almost get to feel like you're, I mean, obviously you're watching it because it's a fucking movie. But the development of him putting on the wig and putting on the tuxedo for the first time and walking past store windows and seeing all these very flamboyant things... He managed to take this eclectic mix of all of these cultures that were within one culture in, in Los Angeles, within California, and make a massive personification of it that 
it's triumphant, man. It's fucking great. Well, that's also like why Rudy Ray Moore was kind of thrown to the edges of pop culture because Red Fox, Richard Pryor, they all had some crossover like potential. Like Richard Pryor played to all different kinds of audiences, mixed audiences. So did Red Fox. They might have started in the clubs, um, primarily black clubs, but they like kind of progressed into being this like more of a mixed audience comedian really more never did because he his his material was almost like specifically geared towards a black audience not that you can't enjoy that but at the time that's i mean that's really what it was it was very much geared at a inner city black audience is who appreciated it and where he made his money and he was like very good at it and not only that when he made the transition to film self-finance because no one wanted to hire him because he was a pot bellied, uh, like in his forties, not very attractive man. They wanted Jim Brown for movies. They wanted Fred Williamson. Um, I mean, that was the thing with, I think that's where the problem really comes into hand that his act worked. His act looked really good. But then when he sits down and he's got this idea before he even secured a screenwriter, before he even had, any sort of, uh, you know, idea behind it, it was, it was just insane. You know, he wanted everything that was popular at the time period. And again, it's shown pretty aptly in the movie, uh, that Eddie Murphy stars in. He, he didn't exactly know what, what he was getting into. All he knew is that he had the backbone. I want to be a star. That's what he wanted it to be. But he wanted to, it wasn't so much just a, a defiant thing. How everyone wants to be noticed. Everyone wants to be famous. He has dedicated at this point his entire life to doing this. There is, it's it's almost, it sounds fucked up, but it, it really is almost deserved at this point. And in his life, I really think a lot of his notoriety in his career was squashed because he was a black man and his music and his comedy was for black people and it's something culturally even now i think white america is afraid of and is is made to feel uncomfortable by you know like oh how am i supposed to feel when they say the n-word uh, you're or why why are you so upset about this you're watching a film you're watching poetry you're listening to rap you're listening to art you're you're whatever it's whatever not really for me to question yeah you, you didn't fucking write it why are you having these emotions toward it in the first place you can't sit down and take the experience or, or look at something and it's fine. It's not being accused of anything, but something outside of your culture can always be frightening. People aren't comfortable by what Rudy Ray Moore came forward and had to offer. And when this Dolomite persona fully came to bloom, I think most people couldn't separate the man from from the entity because they're really. It was so hard to get a hold of him. He ended up buying this dilapidated hotel that was used for all of his sets and is living into this. He's calling it his studio. He he's pretty much become like fucking howard hughes <laughs> he's he's gone what i think most people would think I mean, he's, he's gone insane uh, like at least dolomite he's self-financed it with all the money he made from selling albums and doing his club dates so i mean it's a self-financed movie that has primarily black cast black writer black director with uh dolomite specifically um Derville Martin, who uh, was not happy at all to be involved, I think, with with Rudy Ray Moore and thought a lot of it was juvenile and below him. So when it comes to Derville Martin and and the more you research and you look into Rudy Ray Moore as his career progressed, Derville came into this thinking he was much better than Rudy Ray Moore and is now uh, permanently remembered in history because of Rudy Ray Moore. I mean, nobody really fucking remembers his little bit scene in Rosemary's Baby, but they always will remember Dolomite. They always remember him as the villain in Dolomite. That's something to be said is, I mean, he took primarily 
black crew and they produced their own movie on their terms. And at the end of the day, it was a success. It was a successful film. Now, when you get into Dolmite and get into really Rudy Ray Moore films, you're going to immediately notice that, holy shit, they're incredibly rough around the edges. Rudy Ray Moore can't act for fuck. But who cares? That's what makes these movies enjoyable. I wouldn't even call them so bad they're good movies. They're just good movies because they are entertaining. And Rudy Ray Moore has a screen persona like that. Like he pops off the screen. You remember him. You feel him as his character. Even though his acting is terrible, his dialogue is stilted. It's just so enjoyable to watch him do his his uh, his rhymes and that stilted way in the film to do see him do his terrible karate. Well, you've got Rudy Ray Moore and then you've got Blowfly, um, Clarence Reed, and both of these guys at the same time can be given the the title of Godfather of Rap. But especially moving into uh, even before the late '90s, early 2000s, before you had a lot of subgenres, just rap in general, the rhyme scheme wasn't ever based on just the fact that words rhyme. That was something that was very, very important to Rudy Ray Moore, that even as a child, he grew up in a very religious household, and his mother would constantly teach him rhymes uh, for Easter, about Sunday school, about Jesus, about the Lord, and everyone had presumed with his voice and his stature and you know how, how beautiful he spoke that he was going to become a preacher. So later on in life, once he had figured out the filth of this character and really how to get to people, applying those same uh, basic ideas to it, he really is. I mean, because everything that came from Clarence Reed, and I love Blowfly, I really think is prominent because of of Rudy Ray Moore. I think his record was the the first real X-rated piece like that. I mean, you've got a few years later George Carlin's Seven Dirty or Seven Words You Can't Say on Television bit. That too, I think, is is open. Rudy Ray Moore opened up the door for that. Um, even breaking barriers with somebody like George Carlin. Uh, Pryor himself was a, a Rudy Ray Moore fan. And you've got this dynamic with him, even before you hit the movie scene, even before he decides to do this, that people have become familiarized with this character. People have become familiarized with Dolomite and his rhyme. They've already started knocking his style. When you move into the 1980s and 90s, I think even Public Enemy, NWA, Ice-T especially... All of their images, heavily, the the gold chains, the incredibly uh, bodacious clothes. What Dolomite really helped create was the pimp persona. Yeah, the real big fucking persona. And I think when you, like, even guys like uh, MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice, uh, the use of chains, the use of the flashy gold, uh, the, the lingo itself, I think of a lot of... Uh, what's called modern ebonics straight comes from Rudy Ray Moore and what he... I mean, he pretty much stole it, but whatever. He borrowed from the street. I mean, it's an echo of what he was around and he experienced, I mean, in everyday life. Anagalism or whatever of of the streets, of the hood, of the ghetto, of all of these different experiences. And to him growing up and him working constantly in clubs and dealing with uh, people turning tricks and dealing with drug abuse and drug dealing and, and just how awful show business really is that... God, to be a stage manager, is there really that much difference than being a pimp? But what makes Dolomite so special for the time period is just a movie that is incredibly inept in a lot of different ways, but still so enjoyable to watch. The plot is pretty much meaningless. It's about a pimp who finally gets out of jail, and then he's trying to help like the cops clean up some dirty cops. And get revenge. The the beginning of the film Dolomite itself from 1975 is 
where you right off the bat are like, what the fuck's going on? So Dolomite's in his cell, and you you immediately get introduced to his wonderful style of language. He gets asked to speak to the warden, where he promptly says, what's that rat soup eating motherfucker want? He goes to see the warden, where his number one girl who owns a whorehouse, who's apparently friends with the governor, has been pleading for years and year, two years to get Dolomite out of prison. And... Uh, I don't know, I guess the fucking warden has some weird police powers and releases him to go undercover, letting him know there's an FBI agent that's going to be looking out for him, and he's got to clean up the streets. So that's the the most... I'm not even trying to be vague, but that's the most vague fucking description of the movie, but that's literally what it's about. That Yeah, and it's about those things, but at the same time, it's about nothing. It's about Rudy Ray Moore going around and just being like a cool motherfucker. And yeah, he goes up against... Um, Derville Martin's character. What's his name? I can't remember his name. Uh, Derville Martin's character is Willie Green, the baddest Green, motherfucker you've ever seen. Who's taking over his club. Oh, Dolomite. You yes, do, Warden. You do know a man by the name of Willie Green, don't you? Some folks say that Willie Green was the baddest motherfucker the world ever seen. But I want you to hold on to your seat. He was in jail and Willie Green took his club over, so I gotta, you know, I gotta take down Willie Green. Well, he gets out of prison and immediately fucking kills five people with a machine gun. A white guy's cock gets cut off, and uh, the Dolomite but not rhyme. But fucking in a limo. With many women. We left out the best fucking scene. What the fuck is this? I don't wear any motherfucking cotton drawers. Bitch, you bring me these goddamn cotton drawers. You know I don't wear no fucking cotton drawers. That he gets completely naked right outside of the prison and decides to get into his absolutely beautiful fucking tuxedo and his furs very promptly angry about his women bringing him cotton drawers because... Dolomite doesn't wear motherfucking cotton drawers. Then you go into this ridiculous high-speed car chase, and he kills a bunch of white people while fucking a white... Well, he, kill, he fucks a chick, then kills a bunch of white people. This is, what, four minutes into the movie? <laughs> this isn't it's like... not far into the movie whatsoever. It's just, I mean, that's what I mean. Like, the script is just all over the place, and that doesn't matter because that's really, like... As you can see in the, uh, the Eddie Murphy biopic, it's just kind of, like, throwing shit against the wall... And to see what sticks, I want this in the movie, and I want this, I want some kung fu in the movie, I want this in the movie. And you're getting all those things, but they're just all not really pieced together very well at all. They're just kind of like slapdash, here we go from this plot point to this plot point to this plot point. And that's honestly what keeps the inertia of the movie going and makes it enjoyable is because you never know what you're going to see next. But you are going to see Rudy Moore make some joke that you're going to laugh at do a little bit of a weird performance thing, especially with his face. His face is so overly expressive at times and his dialogue. So underly expressive at times that it just, it makes for a whole interesting dichotomy and an interesting dynamic to the character and his performance as a whole. I think what the Eddie Murphy film says, um, maybe something that we can't really articulate that well, but what is expressed in that film is what Rudy wanted to do was include all of these things that black people wanted to see in movies that you just don't get to see a black person doing in movies. So he wanted there to be an exorcism and Kung Fu and he wanted to be a black guy kicking ass and he wanted to be fucking women all the time and hot cars. You know, he wanted to be Steve McQueen. He wanted to do all these awesome things that you get to see James Bond do that you get to see fucking bullet do. I mean, 
up until that point, most black exploitation films were directed by old white men or old Jewish men. Well, Larry they Cohen wasn't. The, they weren't people. old at the time. I mean, you've got uh, Larry Cohen, who was what in his forties or so in the, in the early nineteen seventies, and like Larry, I think is a good defense of black exploitation because he he worked hand in hand, and his stories. He didn't take some I'm, I grew up a wealthy white guy's story. He tried to at least present something more than the average let's just exploit black people. And that's, I think, a term. This is Rudy Ray Moore himself here. He hated the terminology black exploitation that he, he thought it was almost a slur at this point because the fucking Godfather isn't. Italian exploitation, you don't call things like that exploitation. You don't look at uh, Bruce Lee movies and call that exploitation. So why is a story about a black man? exploitation and in his sense with his black written black produced black soundtrack black everything films calling it exploitation was offensive to him exploitation's fucking redneck movies exploitation's uh, at that even point too the texas chainsaw massacre it had nothing to do with what he was working in and you look at like black caesar by larry cohen that is an exploitation movie, and I think it is explicit, especially to the African-American community. I think it uses devices as a plot that almost makes fun of and lampoons people to where Dolomite itself, he wanted to present, he wanted to show, from his standpoint, from people he knew, from black people he knew, what black people wanted to see on on the big screen, despite how ridiculous it was, he just shoved it all into one <laughs> one thing and said, fuck it, we're gonna, that's it, all of it. Pretty much shoved it all into, like, one scene at the beginning. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, it's, it's just all gonna, we're gonna show it to you at the beginning and then that's it, we're just gonna keep it going. But it continues, it continues throughout <laughs> the entire movie. It's not but a short I, film, it's saying, like fucking like, 90 minutes, it's a feature-length film. The reason you can more consider something like Black Caesar a black exploitation film is because it is specifically being geared towards a certain market. That's why it was created. It wasn't created to tell a specific story. It was created to sell tickets to a black audience. And Dolomite, again, it's it is like created to sell tickets to a black audience, but not specifically. It's just like, no, this is what I want people to see. That what an the inner city community, the African American community in the inner city wants to see in a film. This is for everybody. Let's all appreciate what i'm making here well a big difference here too is that it is not a movie made to sell tickets to a black audience for white people it is a black movie made for black people to sell tickets to black people for black people that there was no middleman there was no company there was no larry cohen it's not jack hill it's not these uh, dominating names i mean you go through the 1970s most of the majorly successful black exploitation films in including almost all of fred williamson's are by Jewish old white I mean, guys. Black Jones is directed by Robert Klaus, for Christ's sakes. Well, Walter Hill. I mean, all of these names, you know them from other successful films. They dipped into this genre, and they got their fingers wet into it, and then even they moved on. They made money off black people, and they moved on, while all these actors, like Derville Martin, he took the fucking role because he was given the offer to direct. He didn't want anything to do with Rudy Ray Moore. He thought he was tacky. He didn't like his style. He considered himself an artiste. And just, it was below him. But hey, I'm a black dude and I get to direct this? All right, I, this is my shot. What we were discussing on the last episode, Bill Gunn, that was, he had a different style. Uh, he's a bit of a film anarchist, as I like to say, I guess. He got this shot and he knew, you know what? I could do some fucking black vampire shit and I could really sell this and I could make money and I can get a bunch of gigs and a studio job. Or I can say my piece and I can live by my own rules. And 
the more and more I look at Ganja and Hess, God, I want to do a whole other episode on it. Because I think we <laughs> I think we might have missed some stuff. I think there's a lot of more beauty about what happens to Dr. Green at the end of the film. Um, but that's a whole different story. But I think it is uh, important in this situation discussing uh, Bill Gunn because he he had this message and he had this shot. And being a black man in a, in a world where you just couldn't get away with art, which I think even now it's like people constantly ridicule Kanye West. Fuck you. I, I'm not even a fan of the guy, but... It's his art, and he's doing his thing, and he's obviously doing it a lot better than you're doing your thing, so shut the fuck up. People didn't understand it. People were confused by it, and he had a very beautiful statement that he was trying to articulate and make. Rudy Ray Moore, on the other hand, was like, you know what, I'm fucking tired of being stepped on. I'm sick and goddamn tired of being stepped on by people that don't even look at me because I'm black, and fuck you for that, and if you don't like it, here's my ass and fucking dick jumping off a mountain. Suck it. And he put it out there for everybody to see. Some of the filmmaking techniques in it are incredibly crude, but they all work to the overall like feel of the film. Cause um, like the sped up sex scenes, the very slapsticky sex scenes that he does, the, um, the overly um, articulated acting that a lot of the, the characters do in it, uh, the amounts of nudity, the, the, the amount of, that this man would get naked and stick his ass in almost every single film he in is it was in is um, fucking amazing. Even like a film we'll be talking about later where a sex scene had nothing to do with the overall story whatsoever. It was completely pointless. Just like I need a sex scene. I think I need a sex scene. I think I need to show my ass at least once. I think as a human, as a person, as an entity, Rudy Ray Moore obviously had shame and he had a whole spectrum of emotions different from Dolomite. But I think when he got into that mode and he became what what he needed to be to get this job done and came up with that emotion that he really actually became Dolomite and it was just out the door of, fuck it, I don't care, I'm going to show my dick, it does not matter, fuck you. And just even going back to the very beginning of this film, it's so ludicrous You've got this uh, overacted scene of him with the warden and he gets out of jail and murders a bunch of people in a big white tuxedo and this huge white fedora hat. Image-wise, it's it's beautifully iconic. I mean, even like Only Built for Cuban Links record, that's pretty much the whole entire vibe. It's like Tony Montana meets Dolomite and it made the 1990s. I mean, Wu-Tang especially old dirty bastard style his rhythmic i'm the one man on me hey, son. i never been took out i keep mcs looking out i drop science like girls be dropping babies off pace bizarre method it's fucking dolomite it's rudy ray moore that's that's just what it is but what's kind of amazing about dolomite is even after its initial release and a little bit of a failure before like coming back super strong um for a movie that was never particularly had a crossover audience at all. It has managed to prolificate throughout the ages and really inform culture as a whole. Cause a lot of the, the pimp aesthetic you see of the seventies pimp aesthetic, a lot of the things that transferred over into rap music, like Snoop Dogg, a good portion of Snoop Dogg's persona is based on Rudy Ray Moore. Well, Snoop Dogg openly has said many, many times, if it wasn't for Rudy Ray Moore, there would be no Snoop Dogg. But even aside from that, people you wouldn't imagine, the insane clown posse, love them or hate them, you can say whatever you want to about the Juggalos, but if it wasn't for them going into the late 90s, uh, the resurgence of Dolomite wouldn't have been any near, anywhere near as successful. He reprised the role for the first time in 25 years for the, uh, God, what was it called, Big Money Hustlers? The Big Money yeah. Hustlers. You know who directed Ugh. that movie? Jerry Only mm. and Doyle's little brother. 
Paul, I believe his name is. Yeah, so that's... <laughs> can't talk too bad about the Juggalos with that being fucking close to the Misfits. But everyone, Kid Rock, he wears those huge hats and the giant chains. Every single person culturally in hip-hop I mean, right now the world's different with guys like Post Malone and Lil Peep. That's why and... I try to keep it to like 90s and early 2000s because things have changed slightly over the years. But all of these guys now, I mean, you've got like Lil Uzi Vert, uh, so many new wave rappers. Their style is sort of a bastardization of the last 20 years. And taking... Well, it's an echo. It's an echo of Snoop yeah. Dogg, who was an echo of Rudy Ray Moore. It exactly. just it passes down throughout the ages. And I think even film-wise, too, you've got something like Friday, Ice Cube's film, uh, the, the the big worm character. So much of this has been replicated and used again and again and again and is eternal literally because of Rudy Ray Moore. Well, also imagery that he has took from the streets. He didn't solely come up with this himself, but he kind of took it in, marketed it, and became like it became his look. According to Rudy Ray Moore's best friend, Delvis Valentine, he, he was a really soft-spoken guy. He was a really casual person that all of this flamboyancy, all of this ego was 100% combining all of these things that he had seen and experienced throughout his life and really taking it from the streets and creating this character. And when you got to know him, he was a very soulful, very uh, passionate person. He really cared about everyone he worked with. I mean, he completely bankrupted himself making Dolomite, and the very first thing he did was repay everyone that helped him along the way. Didn't take it for himself. It wasn't a matter of... I mean, because you hear all the time, and we said at the beginning of the show, he wanted to be famous, and everybody does. He doesn't want to be famous. But to him, it was almost dues owed. He dedicated and gave his entire life to entertainment, and it was just about time somebody at least put his fucking name up in lights, that he gave everything. He gave the years he could have had a family. I mean, Rudy Ray Moore never married. I think he had a daughter, but wasn't really active in her life. He gave everything to show business and it never gave anything back to him until he said, fuck it, I'm going to take it back. And this, this soft-spoken man, you know. The words being famous can be misconstrued as something because being famous is something completely different now with like shit like American Idol and TikTok people and YouTubers. It's like, it's not so much being famous. Rudy Ray Moore wanted to entertain because in the 70s, that's what it meant to be famous. I want to be an entertainer. It's not so much about the the money or the, the prestige. It's about I want to be entertaining and I want to be loved by people and not specifically for just being me. I don't even think it comes down to a decade-wise thing of like, this is what you did in the 1970s. I think that was his life. And in, I don't know if this is the next film we're getting into, but in one of Rudy Ray Moore's films, Petey Wheatstraw, that's something that's that's very specific with the character, that they just want to make people laugh. They want to make this awful world a better place. And I think you really get a personal look at Rudy and who he was as a man that he wanted to be famous, and he wanted to be infamous, and he wanted to be well-known, but the world is miserable. We talk about it all the time, and without trying to be a doomer, everything does suck. And it's not just right now. We've gone through this awful era of Donald Trump, and we're moving into Joe Biden, and you know what? Things might not be that smooth. Things, uh, guess what? We didn't win. Nothing's okay. Everything's just as bad as it was, but everything was just this bad in the 70s, and the 60s, and the 50s, and the 40s, and the 30s. It's cyclical. It just is. You just weren't there, so you don't remember how fucking bad it was. And when you have to deal with that and suffer, and you, you just can't even... 
time never really changes. It really is a shitty saying, but time is a flat circle, and constantly being forced to repeat that and giving everything to that. I think it got to a boiling point to to finally Rudy Ray Moore had had enough, and he he took back. He took from a system that wasn't willing to give to him to the extent that the movie ends up being purchased by Dimension Films. But early, early Dimension Films, something that... We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. Keith David or David Keith. Judge and Jury from 1996 is a movie about an electrocuted killer returning from the dead to take revenge on the authorities who caught him. Who plays said electrocuted killer? Is it Keith David or is it David Keith? It's David Keith. Thanks for playing another fascinating round of Keith David or David Keith. Until next time, goodbye and good luck. And now back to Death by DVD. You know, uh, in its 70s and 80s years, wasn't quite like canon, wasn't pushing as much exploitation, but still was a major move, was something that you never thought would have happened for Rudy Ray Moore, and I think it's because he fucking took it. He, he didn't take no for an answer. He was tired of being abused, and his whole career is prolific. I think everything the man did is is very articulate, but when he moved in and created or borrowed and and personified Dolomite, when he personified the streets, when he became a ghetto expressionist, fucking all bets are off. You're not going to get anything better. And to this day, it's still replicated, stolen from, time and time again. And it's anytime you see it, if you don't know who Dolomite is, it, it blows you away. And if you knew, if you knew, you know, where this came from, you would have that, you know, Rudy Ray Moore, he's forever. You'd, you'd know what it meant pretty much dolomite in a rearview mirror right now it's a classic it is one of the biggest exploitation films of all time it's it will be remembered forever um after dolomite he had a brief role in a movie called the monkey hustle with yafet kodo which we won't be discussing because it's barely got anything to do with rudy anymore <laughs> but the next film we will be discussing i can do monkey hustle incredibly briefly 1976 it is about an hour and, oh, okay, here, it's an hour and ten minutes of Yafat Kodo getting some youths to do his dirty work and steal for him and trade people. Rudy Ray Moore shows up once, he's dressed very beautifully, and then uh, in the last five minutes, a highway is going to be built in the middle of the town, and they all have to come together, they stop the highway from being built, and they have a great barbecue, Rudy Ray Moore dances, and the movie ends. The yeah, monkey it's, hustle. I mean, it's not a, ter- it's just a little bit bland. Dude, it is terrible, It's, it's a lie. studio affair, I mean, it's not... This movie, I, I really, really feel after I watched it was we got to make a black exploitation film. We got to put out a studio black exploitation film, and they got a bunch of African American actors. There's a funk soundtrack. Nothing fucking happens. The movie's about nothing, largely. There, nothing happens. It's cute. You get to see a lot of 
nice. It's all a great performance. It's cute. That's it. There's fucking nothing historical. There's nothing. There's no point to the movie. If anything, if they're going to build a road in your town, come together with Rudy Ray Moore and they're going to stop it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a lesser effort in his career. But next you have the sequel to Dolomite, which is The Human Tornado. As he would call it, the human tornado. The human tornado. The human tornado. Yeah, the human tornado is just. I've seen it. I will say that much about it. It does not compare to Dolomite. It has some echoes in it of Dolomite that are like, you know, it has some good Rudy more stuff in it here and there, but it is a bit of a slog to get through. You have a bonus of um, occasional Ernie Hudson looking the exact same age as he looks now because the man doesn't age at all. Well, I mean, you've got a difference of change here. You've got uh, Cliff Rockmore does the entire movie, and out of all of Rudy's films, the beginning of The Human Tornado is is the greatest entrance to any film, and this has the one of the most powerhouse fucking soundtracks. The well, credits are, yeah, the credits are fucking amazing. That opening credit, it's, it's the Human Tornado song booming in the background, and then Rudy Ray Moore is getting as funky as can be on some hill. He's and half fucking dressed. posing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. He's doing kung fu and karate to invisible people attacking him and then the movie becomes this bizarre lethargic venture into i think i think personally it was attempting to all right we did well with dolomite now let's try and play this audience up and it played yeah, way to too play much a little bit more narrative and give it more of a story and that's really i think it's a downfall it has way too much it's not it's not even an elaborate story it's just they focus on the story too much i think here this is a weird reference here but i i feel the human tornado is almost Rudy Ray Moore's James Bond movie that they took a lot from that kind of like late Connery and going into like the Roger Moore era. And it turns into this really like explicit detective sex story. And he's taking the lead and he's got all these Kung Fu karate girls that we'd established in the first movie. And it just, I have no problem with titties, nudity, or fucking, but man, this movie has so much, it's borderline softcore. It's not even softcore, it's borderline a fucking hardcore, and it goes nowhere. There's just like 10 minute fucking scenes, and then we're at a bar, and it's karate. Trying to hold a a narrative detective story takes away from like, no man, just cut some people's dicks off, do karate, pull their guts out that works. Well, I mean, it just doesn't have enough going on and it. it's, it's so plot heavy and it's not, like I said, it's not like just this great plot. It's just like they end up at this bar over and over and over again. And then Rudy goes out and then he finds a lady to fuck. And then he probably gets interrupted at some point and has to run away or, and it just, it just like this series of scenes over and over again. And it just doesn't have the same spirit, the same energy as Dolomite did. That same handmade kind of look to it. And it seems like Rudy Ray Moore is a little bit more toned down in this film. Like he was really trying to kind of put out a performance and really try to like act as, as a character as opposed to just letting his expression out and doing what he was best at and just letting it flow. It's just missing the lunacy that I associate with a Rudy Ray Moore the, film. It's it, got the lunacy, but I think the lunacy is is playing too much up. I think it's too slapsticky, and it's like, well, you know what? This is what people like. This is what's selling. This is what's what's going well at the drive-in circuit. So let's just play it up to that shit. And it, I don't know, it just doesn't hit the flavor. It's a Dolomite movie, but it doesn't feel like Dolomite's in it. It just feels like Rudy Ray Moore playing a completely separate character. He doesn't feel like the same character at all, really. But if you uh, if you want to talk about slapsticky, we can talk about the next movie, which is Petey Wittrop. Petey Wittrop. Son-in-law of the devil. 
This is probably my favorite Rudy Ray Moore movie, and, and maybe because you don't have the pressure of Dolomite, you don't have him having to keep up with that performance. So if you he's a little soft, if he sounds a little different, it, it makes sense because it's Petey Wheatstraw. The name of this movie, Petey Wheatstraw, comes from a guy named William Bunch, who was a legitimate uh, Delta Blues. I think it was a Delta Blues style musician. There, it's just like hip-hop. There are so many fucking different styles of blues, it's hard to keep up with. Only one known photograph of the guy, but for most of his life, he claimed that he was the devil's son-in-law and that he was the high sheriff of hell. That's where the idea of this movie completely comes from. You've got a dude named Petey Wheatstraw. He's a comedian. This is the movie I referenced earlier that I think is a little bit of a biography for for Rudy Ray Moore. It's a struggling comedian. He can't quite get it right. Things are going well. That's all he wants out of life. The movie begins fucking epically. You've got... Petey Wheatstraw being born as like a full-grown eight-year-old and smacks his father in the face and says, look, you're cocksucker. I'm running this place from now on. His mama whips him, tells him you gotta get into line. Then we flash to him growing up and learning, you know, the ways of, of the world. And eventually, Petey Wheatstraw is shot down. He is absolutely murdered at a funeral and everyone around him is dead. He wakes up in hell and he is given the offer from Lucifer himself that if you marry my ugly fucking daughter... You can have your entire life back. Shows him a picture. We don't get to see it, of course. We, the audience, don't get to see how ugly this woman is. So he decides, all right, I'm going to go back to Earth, and I'm going to trick Lucifer himself into letting me get back onto the world because I've gotten a secret weapon. Lucifer gives him something to get his revenge on all of his enemies. He tells him where to find a very special cane that's got all of the power of hell inside of it. So armed with this, he's going to trick the devil. But what is the cane, Hank? You're leaving out a very important detail what the cane looks like. It's a cane that the the top of it, the head of it, is supposing it's supposed to be some sort of magic rock or a crystal of some kind. And it's a ball of fucking foil. It's literally just a ball of foil that is electrical tape to the top of it. And hey, that's the power of hell. It's cheap. So, I mean, you're moving on from Dolomite being picked up from Dimension. He does the sequel, which doesn't fare anywhere near as well, and moves into a completely different direction. But Petey Wheatstraw was a previously established character when you go back to his albums that he had used this dude, William Bunch's idea. Yes, I'm Petey Wheatstraw, the devil's son-in-law, the high sheriff of hell. I fucked notorious Fanny and a bulldagging mammy made a whore out of Lulabelle. I got a string of whorehouses from coast to coast and protection for them like an invisible ghost. I got four opera houses, three restaurants, two bars, and one grill. Just to serenade the bitches that I'm on fucking drive through the meat. It was in the early 1960s when I first originated my pivot game. I was calling whores jive ass bitches and pimp sucker ass lame. I got magic power. I pulled a hell of a trick. I sandpapered an elephant's ass down to fit my dick. I was riding down the street one bright sunny day 
And I saw a bitch standing over on the corner looking like a lump of sugar about to be melted away. Yeah. I said, baby, who are you waiting for? Can it be me? She said, I'm waiting for my man, Slim, and don't you fuck with me. Said, I've been out here on these streets all the motherfucking night, and I haven't got Slim's money right. I said, bitch, you can never be a star. I'm the pimp of the nation. I'm Beatty Wheatstraw. He said, you ain't nothing but a dive-ass bitch and your man is a lame. I'm the only pimping motherfucker and bitch, I'll show you how to play the game. She says, why you half-bad motherfucker? I'm too contempt. I fucked a thousand women's husbands and I ain't never been there. Beatty Wheatstraw, you are the only one. Baby, now you made my life a real. Ah, now what would you be, baby? Mama, now you made my life a real. I'ma never really have a real thing. Honey, now wrap it round my neck. They want to see that badass two commentary lady. That was the signal for the fucking bout to start. Pretty we this is the cat's real name, but William Bunch was Petey Wheatstraw, but he spelled it differently. It was P-E-E-T-I-E. Reedy Ray Moore did P-E-T-E-Y, Wheatstraw. Took the exact same idea, and a lot of the personification and what made Dolomite is in this character, but I think you've got a much more personal and soulful touch. I think you actually get to look at who Rudy Ray Moore is, and also show that, yes, he's not the greatest fucking actor in the world, but he had some versatility. He's got some comic timing. I will give him that, though. He does have comic timing. This isn't Dolomite, though. I mean, you can watch this movie and establish that this isn't the same character. You can see that he's put forth an effort in at least establishing and writing and coming up with something different, and I think a lot of it was being able to play himself instead of Dolomite, because, like, this character loves his friends, uh, almost his biggest biggest reasoning of trying to escape hell. I mean, one, he's got to marry Satan's ugly-ass daughter, but he doesn't want to lose his friends. He wants to be able to entertain people, and he, he well, says he, it. We kind of go back to him on the streets again, trying to clean up the streets a little bit. Um, and also, there's, a, like, this far-fetched plot that he spent a good portion of the movie on of getting a wino and putting... A Petey Wheatstraw mask on him to trick the devil who's trying to get him back to hell to marry his, you know, his daughter. And it's this long, drawn out plot line that they put this weird mask on him and it just ends up looking exactly like him. And the devil picks him up after 20 minutes of discussing this, this, you know, this idea, this scheme 
And the guy just immediately pulls the mask off and goes, I'm out of here and gets out of the car. And the, well, you got to look at too. I think a lot of all these things, all the people is, is an excuse to put his friends in the film, like Jimmy Lynch and everyone, like that's been, Skillet, everyone that he has known his entire career. Um, you know, you've got almost in every film, very similar appearances. Derville Martin appears in Dolomite, but Jerry Jones and Lady Reed are almost in everything that he has done. Yeah. And like we got in Pete Weistro, we get back to that classic Dolomite style of just really loose interpretation of what kind of film we're trying to make. Not only that, we have this runner through all of his films where no matter what, no matter what character he's playing, he always has a nightclub act. He always is going to get up there and just do his, his act a little bit in the film. He's always going to go up there and just like zing people and call like, people and it's fat. not the Dolomite act. Like it, it's his act, which it's like, it's something too, that we were talking about hip hop culture of how much was replicated from Dolomite. Aside from guys like Don Rickles, you've got Rudy Ray Moore is really one of the first insult comics. And you move into the eighties and you move into the nineties. A lot of his style, I think was borrowed, especially from Eddie Murphy, but guys like Eddie Griffin, their whole persona, their whole let's attack whomever's on the front row of the audience, that that style of comedy, that's what Rudy Ray Moore shows were like. Like, if you sat in the first two rows of a Rudy Ray Moore show, whether it was a concert, which he later in life went back to music and harassed the fuck out of the audience still, or just comedy, you were going to get berated. Especially if you were a white person. That's where he would focus on it, and I think that's where a lot of his humor is lost because people get offended and... I, that's art in general. If you're offended by it, then it's fucking art. But stickly white people that can't take a joke about having a small dick, you can see why his career didn't completely <laughs> keep pushing forward. Well, the movie just keeps going in all these odd directions of trying to get out of this contract he's made with the devil. Like the uh, the demons, quote unquote, show up and they've got like Dracula capes on and like, you know, rubber horns attached. And he fucks a bunch of, uh, of demon women he he fucks them into unconsciousness through a scene of uh well that was his bachelor party wasn't it where he got to <laughs> get all the demon i mean it just goes everywhere and again it's one of those things where you've got the idea of rudy ray moore going well i want to fuck a bunch of demon women and i want to do karate and i got to have some stand up and there needs to be some good music i need at least six different outfits changes i got to have at least three bitches with double d titties his list of demands was crazier than Motley Crue or Van Halen's ever could have been in the 1980s. Like, he just wanted absolutely every fucking thing he'd ever seen in a movie all in whatever he was doing. Like, he was all in when he was in. When he got to do what he was going to do, it was like, fuck it, let's, let's do everything. Like, this is the one time, I mean, yes, Dolomite, Human Tornado all have comedy in them. You can consider them comedy films. But this is like the, one of the first times that Ray Ray Moore is straight up just making a comedy. Sure, it's got action. Sure, it's got karate. Sure, it's got all the things that make a Rudy Ray Moore It's even got horror. I mean, this is, I guess, his only... It's a horror comedy all at the same time. I mean, this is after the, the fact of Blackula. This is after Blackenstein. This is moving into, God, what, 1977? So black horror movies weren't even something that was really a necessity. That era had run. Black exploitation at this point was... You know, uh, Fred Williamson playing some Green Beret that comes back and just shoots a bunch of fucking people and nothing happens. I mean, this is the same era where Tommy Lee Jones is making movies about uh, being a domestic terrorist taking over fucking a New York park and killing everyone inside of it. Movies didn't matter. <laughs> nothing mattered at this era. It was fucking anarchy. Yeah, and Petey Weinstraw is, I would say, out of all of them, you could say it's probably the most fun. It's the most loose. 
Uh, it goes in a lot of different crazy places, but it, it's still not my favorite because my favorite is the last film. Your favorite, I will give to you, is is the you know the the best. Your your favorite is the best fucking movie that Rudy Ray Moore did. I think it's better than Dolomite. But for me, there's I, I guess it's really just um, you know being a horror guy. I love the satanic aspect, and it's kind of like you've got something like The Devil's Reign that's such a serious fucking movie. You've got Borg Nine, you've got Young Tom Skerritt and uh, Shatner, and and it's it's so goofy. Their faces melt. You never even know what The Devil's Reign is. They never even fucking tell you <laughs> what is this sort of thing. And horror in general in the mid-1970s was so loose and so baffling. Everyone wanted to cash in on something similar to Roman Polanski and, and William Friedkin. They wanted to get those same sort of vibes. And then you've got Rudy Ray Moore that's like, fuck it. You know what? The devil has an ugly-ass daughter, and I don't want to marry her. So me and my friends have some Scooby-Doo-style hijinks. Uh, hilarity goes on, titties, and... um. That's the end of the movie. Not even like a clear ending. You've got this wonderful sequence where he is uh, triumphantly going to beat Lucifer and he throws him off this building where he magically catches fire and then he gets into the wrong car and it's with Lucifer and these two guys that he got killed earlier on. Skillet! Skillet! And what's the other guy's name? There's two of them. I can't remember. I don't want Holmes' name Skillet, though. Fucking, uh, hold on. Google interlude. Skillet and comedians. Do, 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 do. Skillet, Leroy. It's Skillet and Leroy. We uh, how we're bastards for forgetting Leroy. Was he not as funny? <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. He yeah, yeah, Skillet and possible. Leroy show up in the fucking car, and you find out. Oh, he's going to hell, and you finally get to see how ugly the devil's daughter is. And it's just a person with like fucking weird hodgepodge, really bad like Don Dollar style makeup, and they laugh, and it's ridiculous. But the point. That makes it so fun is you've got all of this overimposed bullshit. You've got, you know, you're going into the late 70s and the Italians especially. Everything's becoming alien knockoffs and uh, you, you haven't even gotten to the action-esque Road Warrior knockoffs yet. Everyone wanted to make a really scary movie like Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist. And this is fucking so much better. I, I, I can't. Look well, at devil any... shit is pretty popular now, so let's do a devil movie. And it has so little to do with it. Like, uh, uh, G. Tito Shaw's character, Lucifer, ends up becoming one of the most happy characters in the movie. He's stylish as shit. He has some of the best dialogue. He's just a really smooth character. Everything about it, to me, is pleasant. Everything is a... a... Fun here. See, I got to say something was fun. The whole fucking ride for Petey Wheat's draw, I can't find a single complaint for it. It might get off point. It really has. <laughs> it doesn't have an absolute plot. I'll give it that. But it's fucking fun. It's a great ride, and I love seeing Rudy Ray Moore as something other than Dolomite. I love just seeing him, it looks like, have genuine fun. That's something, too, that when you're watching his films, you can almost see on the actors, on his face, they're having fun. They're they love what they're doing, and doesn't that make the product so much more better when you can see these people put passion into it? All right, so the next film we talk about is my favorite Ray Ray Moore movie. It's not a Dolomite film whatsoever, but it is a film about a certain disco godfather. So Disco Godfather has probably one of the most satisfying opening sequences in film history of Rudy Ray Moore wearing false eyelashes, I'm pretty sure, and this bedazzled... Uh, what would you call leotard it? Leotard affair with a cape, sort well, of. I mean, it's it's like 
It's a satin jumpsuit, but it has a bottom, but it's also studded, and it's got these giant, huge collars on it. It's baby... But it cuts. It cuts real low. Yeah, it's it's super low cut, almost like dick and ball level. It's Robin Eggs blue also, and it's it's completely studded, almost like a punk vest the entire way up, and he's got this ridiculous silver collar on, and then the chains hanging off of it. So it's like this... I don't know. It's like if Rob Halford had starred in Blue Velvet as Isabella Rossellini. <laughs> okay, that's a weird <laughs> fucking reference. I don't know. It's like it's the weirdest fucking looking fashion gear. And out of everything, I think this movie really holds Rudy Ray Moore as a man, uh, as a message, as a man of God, as a man that wanted to to show a black man not getting his ass kicked the message behind this movie is literally stop fucking doing drugs because he didn't drink. He didn't sm- I mean, he might've smoked some pot and had a fucking drink here and there, but he wasn't a raging alcoholic. He wasn't some John Cassavetes type guy. He wasn't fucking up. He wanted to make a positive character that like the disco Godfather people could see and be like, fuck yeah, I want to be like the disco Godfather. Put your motherfucking weight on it. I'm not going to do PCP. 24 times. He says, put your weight on it. Put just in like the opening 10 minutes weight on it. And I don't know what the fuck it means. Um, it means put your fucking weight on. I mean, if you're going to do anything, if you're going to get up, put your fucking weight on it. If you're going to brush your teeth, put your fucking weight on it. You're going to go get gas, put your fucking weight on it. Everything you do in your life, if you don't put your weight on it, you're fucking wasting your potential, your life, your time, your existence, your persona. Put your fucking weight on it. Put your weight on it. Put your weight on it, baby. Put your weight on it. Well, and the movie does have a narrative plot because we don't always go to the disco because this movie meanders like a motherfucker because it becomes about PCP getting introduced to the neighborhood, specifically his nephew, Bucky. Um, Bucky smokes some sherm and he starts seeing um, the PCP, the Angel Dutch Witch, the Angel Dust Witch. Um, Also, skeletons and weird demon basketball players in a black void are attacking him. Because that's exactly what PCP does to people. And it becomes this anti-Angel Dust movie all at the same time. It's also a disco film. Also the same time that um, there's a mob boss type character who's making the PCP named Stingray, who's played by the bus driver from Speed. That's correct. Um, (laughs) And it just, we go through all this disco stuff at the beginning. Wait a second. Wait, maybe I don't understand Speed. I thought... Who's the, the Keanu wait. Reeves film Speed? Yes. Yeah, no, I thought the it bus was driver from Speed. That was fucking Keanu Stingray. Reeves. Who's driving the bus? Wait, there's a, it's not Keanu Reeves and 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 America's Sweetheart. Yeah, I don't the original her name. bus driver for he gets taken out and uh, Sandra Bullock has to take over. Oh fuck, I don't remember that much about the movie. Sorry, I didn't mean to waste time here. That was good shit. What an awful <laughs> interlude. No, I was he just gets shot in the arm and then Sandra Bullock has to take. Over. I thought the movie was Keanu Reeves driving a bus. So sorry. <laughs> but anyway, so it becomes. Rudy Ray Moore trying to clean up the neighborhood of this PCP demon um, and starting an organization called Attack the Whack because apparently it was also called Whack back in the day as well. And it's very focused on PCP, what it can do to you in a weird, like, almost like government propaganda film of having people act like they're mentally unstable because they've smoked angel dust at some point. So the the first bit of it is just kind of some hilarity with these like weird PCP hallucination scenes in Bucky and Rudy Moore screaming all of his lines like I said at the beginning of, of the show. Um, where is Bucky and what has he had? Call an ambulance. Where is Bucky and what has he had? Angel dust. I told him he was smoking too much of it. 
Glenda, I want you to call an ambulance, and when they get here, I want you to tell them what he has had. You understand? And then, like, Rudy Ray Moore leaves the film at, like, periodic times, and it just becomes about him as an ex-police officer trying to break up this PCP ring. At the beginning of the film, you get introduced to this PCP doctor who has a whole hospital for two far-gone PCP patients. And you go into that mix for, what, like 10, 15 minutes where you Explaining have all Explaining these... what PCP does and uh, how a woman... Um, for like a Thanksgiving dinner, baked her baby and tried to serve it, baked the baby in the oven. She's not the only one. You go through two or three till they fixate. Oh, there's an exorcism of PCP. And this is what I think he really wanted in Dolomite was the exorcism scene. He finally got to have it done, which was kind of funny in the Eddie Murphy film. He's got a scene where he's sitting down with the writer and he's going over everything. He goes, you know what? Exorcism won't work. We'll do that in the other film. And he looks up at him. Uh, it's Keegan-Michael Key. Looks up at him so pissed off. Like, what do you mean the other film? And obviously, if you're a fan of fucking Dolomite, you would know. It's a Petey Wheatstraw reference because the, the film with Eddie Murphy was an entire... You know, it was a very early bio. You kind of got it that that all thrown at you, and then the, the making of Dolomite, and it ends there. And unfortunately, it ends on this really great high note that makes it seem like um, the rest of Rudy's career was really, really great. Which I mean, it was mediocre at best, and it sucks because like I I think Petey Wheatstraw is a really strong film, and especially in the era as a drive-in picture, um, it's surprising it didn't do better. And then you have the Disco Godfather. For one, the most competent film he's done. And even though it does, like where I trailed off and we're getting into, it gets very lackadaisical with um, just well, him start, wanting okay. to put. It, he, it starts as this. Well, he just wants to put so much film. in the movie. Like, I think that's where the problem is that he's got these great ideas, but he's got to make it's It's a ball. It's one big spitball of every idea. And then it, it starts as this disco film. And then it kind of turns into this anti-PCP message. And then it turns into kind of a police procedural of trying to break up the, you know, the, the people on the street selling the PCP. And then it turns into another karate film towards the end where there is a song called Shermanizing. Um, let me get the, the full title here because, was it, Shermanizing Dance with the Devil? One-way ticket to hell. And um, while he's doing Kung Fu, and then he has to go one-on-one -on -one with the biggest of Stingray's men, and he gets infected by, like, PCP, and he starts going crazy. What the craziest thing about the film is it's unresolved at the end because they get Stingray, but Rudy Moore is like, he got like he did some PCP and now he's fucking crazy. The end credits roll. Auntie, I fucking hate you, Auntie. I'm gonna kill you. He sees his mama. He sees the 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 angel dust uh, angel dust witch, which you always have to see for some reason. Everyone who does it sees this this hag woman with white hair who dances around with her long fingernails. I don't know why everybody sees her, but they do. But that's the fucking wild thing about this movie is that it's an anti-PCP film. The whole point of this movie is this is an awful drug. It's killing our youth. We shouldn't have it on the streets. But the only way that I can defeat the evil is if I do a bunch of PCP and get superpowers. And then he literally gets like crazy strong, thinks this evil henchman is his auntie that he hates and fucking almost strangles them to death until he is finally stopped by Bucky. Yeah, it's just kind of a wild ride. I mean, I will admit that the middle part gets a little ass draggy, but overall, it's just such a wild ride. But the colors are interesting. 
The um, performances are interesting. All the weird PCP nonsense is crazy. You know, I guess that's um, a, a real big fault on us is is one of us, I guess, should have looked up how, how most of these were filmed because, I mean, we're working in an era of 35 millimeter in film. I know Dolomite, he managed to get, was it Berkeley or, or UCLA film students? One of the two. Both had an okay film department. He managed to get some really young white kids to come and work for him on that film. But after Dimension got involved and we move into what we've been discussing the last hour or so, you know, it really is a shame. Fuck, I feel bad now. I should have... <laughs> Damn it. Motherfucker. We do this show for 10 years, 12 years, and nobody does work. But you got to look at how these movies are done, that they are what you're bringing up, the color and the articulation. They might be crudely edited. They might be crudely acted, but I mean, even being shot on short ends, they fucking look good. And Dolomite... Definitely was mostly shot on short ends, but Disco Godfather, Petey Weed, Straw, The Human Tornado. The films look different. The quality looks different. I mean, I, I'm i probably speaking out of line here, but it looks like Kodak. It's, it's very warm. It's very vibrant. It captures colors really, really well. So that means at this point into his career, you've got an editor, you've got... An actual crew of people that are working, not just his friends. Well, not I think just... Disco Godfather was really his move to try to get to the big time, to really try to get to like Hollywood movies, and it just didn't work, and it didn't take off, and his c- career pretty much suffered after this film, and he didn't I mean, really... I, I don't know how to say this, but I think it didn't work, because it, it, it again, is, is too black. That... He's playing too different. Well, that is a weird statement to make that way. It's it's really hard is what I mean. But I mean, with his whole career, Rudy Ray Moore, I think specifically was making movies for black people. And then you've got disco Godfather and it's a product that you could have sold. It's a product if it was cut or acted or edited differently. But again, he said, fuck you. I'm, I'm making it for, and I keep referencing it, bringing it up. There's a really great scene in the Eddie Murphy film where his producers for Dolomite say, you can't keep making films for the same five blocks of people you know and rudy says back yeah but those same five blocks exist everywhere and he 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 never cut short on making his movies black he never said i'm gonna make this for a white audience you brought this up with uh, red fox and richard pryor they didn't sell out i'm not fucking saying that okay i'm not saying that they sold out they, and they just made... had crossover appeal and Ray moore just never had that crossover appeal but the difference is they wanted to they knew what they could do they knew how to shape their humor and to move and maneuver things and rudy ray moore never wanted to be a stickler he never wanted to move that he felt he was sellable and i agree i think he is and i think now especially if somebody like rudy ray moore existed they they would i mean okay this uh... I don't care what you think about it. Maybe the audience might bulk. I think somebody like Kanye West, I think he's very similar to Rudy Ray Moore. He doesn't give a fuck, and he banks things, and he makes art for himself, and he goes out there, and he works his hardest, and he makes his record label, and he makes his clothing line, and he makes his statements, and he does every single thing with his success and his pride and his heart, and that's how that motherfucker works, and it's great. I don't really care for his music. I don't care for his style. But Kanye West, as his own, as an artist, he's like an Andy Warhol, Dolomite mixed together type of guy. I have a lot of appreciation for who he is as an artist. And he has never once stifled his opinion. He has never once said anything different. This is the same guy that came on television and said, George Bush doesn't care about black people. And he was right. George Bush didn't care about black people. His entire... And we brought this up, too, at the beginning of the show. You have so much of modern culture that its dues have to be paid to Rudy Ray Moore, paving that way and showing 
you can make a black movie for black people. It might have never been successful, but now, 20, 30, 40 years later, holy shit, you, you have Kanye West, you have uh, got Jay-Z and Beyonce, those are some of the most richest fucking people in the world right now. In the 1970s, would you have ever believed that? Would you have ever believed that an African-American woman would headline at the Super Bowl? That was that would be a joke. No one would have taken that seriously. And I think, <laughs> bold-ass shit here, I think it's Rudy Ray Moore that really paved the way, even with stuff like Disco Godfather, of not backing down and making black movies. And that's what I mean with they're too black. White culture, white society still... You you look at African American movies. I brought this up on the Bill Gunn show. Why is it why is it not a comedy? Why does it have to be so black? Why what's wrong with this? What is wrong with that? Why do you have a problem with it? Why does it always have to be a court jester? Why do you just have to laugh at black people? It's not always fucking funny. Life isn't always funny. Sorry, that was a lot. Um. <laughs> anyhow, here's I Alexander Nash. Well, let me tell you the story about when I met Rudy Ray Moore. Because I don't think I ever told you this story. You ha- you you told me years and years and years ago, and I'm sure it's on an old episode. But well, it's, you know. it's not even that entertaining. But it's just he was doing a signing at a, a video store I used to frequent. He was in town doing a uh, comedy performance. This is like maybe three years before he actually died, and he was there in some leopard print pajamas, carrying the cane, had a leopard print hat super super reserved and quiet man though he was just signing stuff and just hey people are going hey i really i I just love your work i love dolomite and he was just like yeah (laughs) and what's also weird and it also has to do with you know the part of town i was in um the hipster nature of uh the video store i was at but everybody there was white everybody there was wet. There was not a black man getting anything signed. So, I mean, like, I don't know what that says about the state of, uh, rear Moore's career that like later in life, he started to be appreciated by more of a hipster audience. Well, it's the Quentin Tarantino crowd. I mean, even guys like yeah. Tarantino, when he did Jackie Brown, he had that influence. And I think a lot of people want to think they're allies. They want to think they're helping. They want to think they're doing the right thing. And you end up, making money off of people you end up making money off their image and you're not doing a goddamn thing for them and it's not like you know you uh, quentin tarantino takes old actors and rob zombie does it too sure that's fine you know tarantino had sid haig and jackie brown that's that's hip that's really a a cool tribute but what the fuck did you do for anybody and uh, even a lot of that can go down to uh, 1990s rappers that you had Rudy on your, your records, you you talked about him, you sang about him, you rapped about him, but what did you do for the culture and what did you do for the people? Money is always important and success, obviously, you know, that's, that's you want to have nice things. You don't want to be fucking successful and everything suck. But I, as a human being, as a, as a man himself, I think Rudy Ray Moore wanted to be and, and was very successfully a positive influence to the black community that you can be black and you can do all the same shit that these other people do. You can produce your own movie. You can produce your own record. You can do everything down to the fact that the original Dolomite Records, he had learned uh, through years and years and years of working with people how to record a record. Ended up getting studio quality shit. Literally just invited a bunch of people to his house recorded the record so when you listen to those and you hear the laughter and this this raucous nature and drinks in the background and people lighting cigarettes and joints 
That's how he sold it. He sold tickets for people to come hang out with him, dressed as Dolomite, which he had become you know, a sensation for at this point. This is previous to the film being released. People paid to come hang out at his house and listen to him talk shit on record with a beat in the background. I mean, something like this had, had been, you know, every comedy record, you've got that bullshit, hello, mutta, hello, fada. You've got so many comedians doing the same thing, and what Rudy Ray Moore had to offer was something that was specifically a black experience. I think what he never buckled with, what he never altered with, and what he never fought with was the fact that I am 100% black and I'm going to make this a black experience, and if it makes you uncomfortable, fuck yourself. And that could have been part of his downfall, but the fact that he fought for that his entire career, the fact that that was his entire career, I think's fucking changed the world, because he, he was himself. Every single moment, he might have adopted the character of Dolomite, Petey Wheatstraw, all these other things, Disco Godfather, but he was always himself. Even later on to his career, he did the uh, Shaolin Dolomite movie in the late 90s. Ah. Uh, it's a recut film from the, the mid-80s. It's a Thai film, a kung fu movie, and they've got these segments with Rudy Ray Moore, and it's absolutely awful. 2002, 2003, you've got The Return of Dolomite, which I've not seen it. I'll let you know that much. But I've seen some bits and pieces of it. They've got kung fu actors actually standing in for Dolomite. It looks hysterical. He's come back from Africa, and he's got like psychic powers where he can control people's minds and make them levitate and blow up and all this crazy stuff. But most explicitly, he's stuck to who he fucking was the entire time, even down to the very bitter end in 2008. He was performing, singing, working. Entertainment, the, the love of entertaining people, that was his essence, his energy, his life. But I really think it was being black. I think his big thing here was, was being a black man doing this and showing the world that there's nothing unusual about it. How about you start looking at people like equals? So, this brings us to the end. I hope you'll be able to identify Rudy Ray Moore as one of the first, and if not kings, of indie cinema. The ashtray's full, and the bottle is empty. You rat soup eating born insecure motherfuckers. Check us out next week on the next episode. Welcome back. I, Alexander Nash, is a wisecracking teacher who returns to his alma mater, James Buchanan High School in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, New York, New York, to teach a remedial class of loafers called the Sweat Hogs. <laughs> the rigid vice principal dismisses the Sweat Hogs as witless hoodlums and only expects Nash to contain them until they drop out or are otherwise banished. As a former remedial student and founding member of the original class of Sweat Hogs, Nash befriends the current group, who are led by the wise-cracking Hank Barberino. Hey, Mr. I. Alexander Nash! <laughs> and stimulate their potential. Find out what happens next week on Welcome Back, Death by DVD. Bye.
My DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. Death by DVD is broadcast from on top of the Blue Crystal Sunshine Mountain in any town USA with transmitters on top of the Empire State Building. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. I put my finger in the ground and turn the whole world around. Motherfuckers!